You're listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. Hello and welcome to Future Thinking from Stylus. I'm your host, Christian Ward, Head of Brand Engagement and Multimedia Strategy at Stylus. And today we're going to be talking about how our mental health needs are increasingly being served by artificially intelligent bots. So are robots the future of social care? To help answer this question, I'm joined by Alison Darcy, founder and CEO of Wobot, a mental health and self-care chatbot advisor. I'm also joined by Estella Shardlow, Senior Editor of Consumer Lifestyle at Stylus. So welcome to you both. So to begin with, Alison, please, could you tell us a little bit about the concept of Wobot? What inspired you to create it? Sure, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Wobot is an emotional support tool that is delivered via conversation on an app, a mobile app. And it's based on the principles of cognitive behavioral therapy, which um, is probably the most researched and evidence-based approach to mental health that we have, but it also lends itself really well to digital translation because it's very based on sort of data and problem solving and very discreet um, kinds of techniques. I, I was inspired to build Wobot because I, in my work as a clinical research psychologist, I had spent over 20 years trying to solve this problem, this huge problem that we have with access in effect, I was building, you know, really nice treatments and, you know, exploring lots of ways in which we could use technology to augment the great care that clinicians provide in clinics and what have you. But I was just always haunted by the same question, which was, how are we just going to get the three quarters, the two thirds of the people that will actually never get in front of a clinician towards just better overall mental health like how can there not be something in between you know a self-help book and and seeing a therapist and I think so that's really that's really the space I think where Wobot occupies. So how does the app actually monitor someone's state of mind? Very simply, we just ask people. So there isn't any, you know, passive detection. There are no, you know, I guess crunching numbers in the background. We don't incorporate any other data types at the moment. We just ask people. And actually, that's one of our kind of guiding design principles. Wobot explicitly says, you know, even if I could, you know, detect how you're feeling, I would rather just ask you. Because I think that's the most important data point that we have really is is somebody's own impression of how they're doing. And that's, of course, also one of the the things that we're trying to encourage, right, is is offer this moment of self-reflection rather than you know, tell somebody how they are doing or there's, there's no real magic behind that. I think all of the magic is with people at the end of the day. So it's, it's, it's much more of a pragmatic sort of down to earth kind of solution than one might imagine when, when AI is in the title. So you ask robots or you talk to robots and then what happens? What, 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 how does the artificial intelligence part of robot then kick in? Yeah, so we, you, yeah, that's right. You text with Wobot, so it's text-based only. And every day, Wobot will ask you, how are you doing? And what's going on in, in your life? And that is to help develop both self-awareness of, of emotional state and also the context in which those emotional states are happening. And then if really what happens from then on in depends on how you're doing. So if you're reaching out to Wobot in a negative mood, 
will but might in, invite you to go through a, a technique from you know one of the evidence-based approaches that we have either through cognitive behavioral therapy dialectical behavior therapy or interpersonal therapy but depending on what the problem is so if you've said oh, i just had a you know just had a fight with my partner then well, what might is say, well, do you want to work on this relationship? You know, do we want to debug this argument? What else will we do? Versus, you know, if you're just sort of feeling sort of sad and, you know, just having difficulty getting through the day, then well, what might offer you some ways to think about things differently? Versus if you're in a pretty good space, then that's when Wobot will invite you to a conversation that is on a topic of you know just some overall mental health supporting information so there's a lot of teaching and learning in cognitive behavioral therapy too and most of that is best delivered when somebody's feeling well right like at the last time last thing you want to do when you're not feeling great is like learn something new it's actually very hard to engage that way because our brains are really just not in in the optimal space so it's just about really responding to people's emotional state and their cognitive state as well and you know just lots of good stuff trying to keep those good tips and good advice and good concepts as engaging as possible it's fascinating that i mean i think we will we'll delve more into the nitty-gritty of, of of how all this works in a moment but estella i just wanted to bring you in here because you've been tracking a lot of different startups and initiatives in the mental health space this year what grabbed your attention about robot yeah i think that really it was the the accessibility of the the tool because we've seen that with the pandemics taking such a toll on people's mental states, things like loneliness and anxiety are being described as sort of silent pandemics behind COVID. And at the same time, you've got a lot of disruption happening to sort of traditional counselling services and, and healthcare. So it's this kind of perfect storm of issues, which makes something that's that's more accessible and adaptable like this, especially crucial. And one of the great things about Wobot, I think, is is kind of the relatability of the the, the interface, you know, mimicking I suppose a lot of like the social messaging apps that that consumers would be very familiar with, you know, adding some sort of emojis and gifs and things where appropriate, it really helps sort of normalize discussions around your psychological state. So it's a less intimidating kind of entry point to tackling those issues. We've we've seen that mental health has been coming a lot more into public discourse in recent years, and and there is a growing understanding that it needs to be kind of considered on par with physical health. But there are still a lot of taboos or at least self consciousness around dealing with it. There was um, a recent UCL study that showed that stigma remains the number one barrier for young people in getting professional help for their mental health, and the second being mental health literacy, so sort of being able to, to talk and vocalise about how you're feeling. So I think a tool like Wobot really breaks down some of those barriers. I also just kind of love any examples of seeing how tech's being used to promote better well-being, because we always hear so much about how sort of digital interactions whether it be sort of doom scrolling or addictive algorithms kind of being detrimental to our mental health. But something like Wobot really shows how tech can help rather than hinder our well-being. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Perhaps uh, we can discuss that a bit more, this idea that, you know, technology can be addictive, it can be toxic, but, you know, in situations like this, there are, there are ways that it can have a positive effect. Alison, how do you think about design from that perspective when you're, when you're designing things like Wobot? How do you think about the user experience and, and how it can be less toxic? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question because 
as Estella said, you know, really she's been hitting the nail on the head for what we were trying to achieve. So uh, that's great. <laughs> that's great news. Um, because again, you know, I think the problem that we were trying to solve for was access. As you state, the number one thing that prevents people is stigma. And so emotional accessibility, I think, is, is, is really the biggest barrier. And I think over the years, really deeply begun to understand what stigma really is. And it's, and it's very much, you know, that old thing, we're just so much more cruel to ourselves than other people tend to be. And it's really, it's self-stigma, right? Like, we're so fearful of how other people will perceive us or just you know just the effort that it takes to kind of well to go all through those logistics and then kind of get yourself ready to then show up to a perfect stranger and then divulge everything that's going on in your mind so so it was what what could we do to make that on-ramp just as like flat as possible just make it so easy and part of that I think was make it a bit tug-in-cheek, like let's turn this around, make it not about what's wrong with you, you have a diagnosis, and rather it's just, you know, this is part of the human condition. We all go through really stressful times. We will all lose somebody, unfortunately, and sometimes our, all of our thinking gets skewy. That is just, you know, that's just a result of being human. And so Wobot is sort of addressing it from that point of view, that even the humour that you that you speak to is something that I found in my own practice when I was seeing patients, I found that, you know, you can kind of get a little bit hypnotized with the gravity of what's, what's happening. And humor always helped to not minimize, but it helped to keep things going so that you could stick with the subject. And, and so we think about, we've sort of introduced a lot of humor into Wobot, a little bit of sort of tongue in cheek kind of humor, even the name Wobot was intended to be tongue in cheek. Because actually I went to the, one of the Reddit, uh, subreddits for depression and asked the moderators there, like, what do you think about this name, Wobot? And they said, oh, I'm so glad you're not just calling it joyful or whatever. You know, they were like, we're so sick of those names. They are so, you know, patronizing. And so just all of these things, it's just like any good design endeavor, you know, you've just sort of radically put yourself in the shoes of, of people and how it's going to be perceived and, and, and what that experience is like in that moment. And I think that's been absent a lot from academic and sort of traditional treatment development work, it's, which has tended to be a lot more top down. You know, what does the theory suggest is the next innovation we should make and then make it so incremental so that, you know, it's really tiny and that you can get the funding for it and things like that. And, and so there hasn't been a whole lot of huge innovation in recent years, not compared to other fields. There has been innovation in mental health, I'm happy to hear, but I think technology just offers us this potential to, to create something genuinely new and, and orient with people in a different way, in a new way. And the other interesting thing about chatbots, I mean, I've, I've written about chatbots in the past on Stylus, and I remember seeing data around how willing people are to talk to so-called robots in a way that they're not when it comes to face-to-face -face interactions with other people whether that's for things like insurance or whether it's more important you know more, more personal stuff like health I mean Estella have you seen an evolution in, in consumer reactions to, to, to chatbots? Yeah, people definitely seem to be becoming more receptive. I think partly social distancing has had a part to play in that recently but I, I think it is more than that that at least initially, people do seem more comfortable with non-human sort of avatars discussing those very sort of sensitive personal issues. 
there was a, a global study that came across recently that found over two thirds of, of workers would rather talk to a robot about their mental health uh, concerns than to their managers. And I think 80% were open to the idea of an AI counsellor, which is see, a pretty compelling figure to sort of back that up. And I think the consensus of why people were, were feeling this way was about it being a judgment-free zone, kind of easier space to share your vulnerabilities in. And I think that also the quality of, of interactions that chatbots can offer, their sort of cultural competence and, and kind of levels of personalization will, will probably affect how much more uptake there is going forward because, you know, there, there, there's becoming with the amount of data that people can gather now, they're kind of becoming more convincing and more fluent in sort of the way they can interact with people. I'd be really interested to see how how the amount of data that's gathered uh, from the, the whole pandemic will be will affect this evolution. Because if you consider that we've never really had a, a health and financial crisis of happening simultaneously, affecting every country in an age where we can actually track and analyze behavior to this extent. That's kind of an unprecedented insight for, for developers like, like Alison. And I'd be really curious to see how this can be used to kind of inform and improve the next generation of, of wellness AI tools. Yeah, Alison. I mean, have you seen uh, what sort of changes in the in the usage of Wobot and the data you're you're getting? Have you seen over the past year because of the situation that we're all in? Oh yeah. Well, it was interesting. It, it just sort of well in mid February we started to look and see were people actually turning to Wobot for support for you know anxiety to do with coronavirus and back then it was really mostly anxiety and it was interesting if you plotted out the mentions the the curve looked exactly like the infection curve um, here in the US and that was really interesting but and then suddenly you know it it, it became it, it grew exponentially and you know it was just something that we chose to jump into and address um, really quickly, partly to help alleviate the anxiety that our own team were feeling. And interestingly, when we did, we got a grant from the National Institutes of Health, which is the health branch of the US government, to explore how people were responding to the pandemic and how people were coping in particular, and also to look at where uh, we were in this unique position to be able to see if people were, um, to ask people if they were being adherent to the guidelines. And for the most part, people were, it was sort of a normal curve. And for the most part, people had elevated stress and anxiety. We had 85% increase in anxiety. But interestingly, there were a couple of things that surprised us. One was that the younger the age the more affected, negatively affected by the stress they were. So the worse they were coping. And then the other piece was that among the group, among the groups that were coping really well were frontline medical workers, which was really interesting. But of course, it speaks to even the great, the World Health Organization advice for what to do in, in a crisis is give people a purpose. And, and, and we think that that's um, what allowed them um, to cope, you know, reasonably reasonably well although again this is all in the context of elevated stress and anxiety another thing that was fascinating was that when we looked at what people were actually the things that were triggering people when they felt particularly anxious when they were really feel, uh, reaching out um, in, in that moment of need were you like just remarkably homogenous there were about five or six trigger things that were felt almost by everybody across the world 
really, really interesting. One that sticks out to me was um, the sight of people in line outside a supermarket, or as they say, say it's a grocery store. And I mean, I can remember that myself, a sort of startling reality, the things that you take for granted, you know, everything was upside down, you know, just adding to that, that overall impending sense of doom. But it was just interesting that it was a very unique thing that it was shared across the entire population at the same time. Some of the challenges that we've seen with AI-driven technology over the past couple of years in terms of bias, the bias that gets built into these machines from the people who, who make them, especially when it comes to race um, and gender. Is this something that you have, have been working on, have you thought about when it comes to robots? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so from the beginning. I mean, that, you're right. That's one of the risks of any technology like this, but particularly AI where it's a black box and you can't see necessarily the inputs. If those inputs are anonymous, which, which they are in robot, is that you end up building something for a specific group that is overrepresented. And actually those algorithms will sort of shift towards that group over time. And it's just, it's one of those problems that we have to be aware of and constantly on top of in AI. So yeah, we do, we have, we have a diversity board among the, in our company and we have a group as well internally. It is something that is very top of mind in the company and like a a lot of people very motivated to, to, you know, to make sure that there's adequate representation and what does that mean? Right. And stuff like that. When when I was still at Stanford, um, one of the things that I specialized in was males with eating disorders because I noticed that in our clinic, even though the kind of conceived wisdom was that uh, one in 10 eating disorder cases were male, I could see in our clinic just these these boys coming in one after the other and it was much higher than the one in 10 sort of suggested prevalence and so when I sort of dug in there and I did a study where we compared a large group of males who had a diagnosis with matched females what you could see was that the the diagnostic instruments that we were using were had all been developed with uh, exclusively female samples and so we were missing a lot of the male presentation and so we just weren't asking the questions that would get you to the diagnosis. And it made me really think about things like inclusion, access, and the language that we use, honestly, and that how the language you, you, you use can actually alienate somebody or just you know, get in the way of, of sort of being able to have a balanced conversation where you're really getting a sense of what's going on for somebody. So yeah, we do, we do, we do think about it a lot. It's not perfect, right? Um, it's hard to, one of the challenges I think is how do you, how do you design for adequate representation without asking somebody what their race is? This is one of the things that I confess it was very startling for me when I moved to the US. You're constantly being asked what, what race you are. And of course, this is my experience as being part of the, you know, the default norm, right? Like white, a white woman. And um, so I understand that this is, you know, that's sort of part of my privilege is to be startled by that. But yeah, I mean, it has, it just raises a lot of questions, right? You know, in an ideal utopia and Wobot can see everybody as purple. And, but that's just, yeah, that's not the world in which we live. What are your grand plans for Wobot? Is, is, is there sort of an evolution of this technology beyond mental health? I think what we want Wobot to evolve into is, an emotional system that can be with you across the lifetime. 
and is able to respond to where you're at at any given moment, what's going on with you and how severe are you and be able to make recommendations that are based on, you know, stepped care approaches, which are practiced in the UK and, and, and many parts of Europe and just, um, you know, that basically aim to get people back to whatever they were doing before as fast as possible. Um, and then I'm also capable of going a step higher even for, you know, when somebody requires a prescription and that there are non-molecule solutions available um, for people on prescription when they need them right now, or we have our drugs for prescription. And I think physicians could use something else, right? There could other choice. And we're, you know, we're, we're beginning to appreciate that a lot of these digital solutions can be as effective as some of the, the drugs that are available, but have fewer side effects. So we want to have Wobot, grow Wobot into something that can respond in a long-term way. So, you know, actually gets to know you over several years and kind of knows that, you know, you, you might've had a baby two years ago and you know, your mother died six months ago. And that's meaningful information. And also know, know, that, know what, what helped you in those scenarios, what kind of tools you can make really good use of. Um, so that those things, so you get the right care and the right help as fast as possible. And then if you need more help, we'll suggest that straight away. And then for the rest of the time, kind of fades into the background, right? Um, that's really where we want Robot to go. Great. I, I just wanted to flag up something you said yesterday, which I thought was kind of incredible in terms of the, the scope and the reach is of your your findings about there was one day where it registered that Wobot had had more interactions in that day than a human therapist could have in a lifetime. So that was quite startling finding yeah. in terms of how yeah. far its, it's, its reach can can go. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. That was, that was the day that we launched. And I will never forget, I was sitting back on the kitchen table, just sort of taking a deep breath. It was probably around 1130 at night. And one of my collaborators called Andrew Ng and he said, yeah, I said, you know, do you realize that Wobot's had more conversations today than a therapist could have in a lifetime? I thought, wow, that does speak to scale. Now, of course, if anybody's wondering, we don't, we don't aim to, and there is no replacement for human connection, of course, but I think Wobot was able to help a substantial amount of those people, right? And that's, that's not nothing at that scale. Fantastic. Well, Alison, I ask um, my guests the same three questions at the end of each episode. So if you're ready for the challenge, the first one is, if you had a million dollars, where would you invest it right now? You know, I think I would be interested in helping. I, I have just returned to Ireland for a while and I could see that um, there is a bit of a controversy here at the moment. I think it's a very difficult thing for immigrants that they are, are not allowed to work. And, you know, there are there are sort of significant displacement and people are coming from significant trauma. So I think I would probably invest well that's not an investment that's a charitable donation but i think i would or ooh, that's an idea maybe i would invest it in people who are trying to create some social enterprise to help displaced asylum seekers yeah okay the second question is what's a, a consumer problem or challenge you don't think has been successfully solved yet beyond the one obviously that you are uh, trying to solve yourself with wobot well, I think we spoke to it earlier. I, I don't understand why nobody has solved the tech addiction issue. 
And I know there's been some stories. I know Google has sort of released some wellness features on their phones and things, but I don't think this is going far enough. And, you know, I just, we're so distracted as a population now. And yeah, I don't, nobody's really doing a very successful job, I think, that I've seen so far to date. And I apologize if you're in that field, please contact me and let me know all the great innovation that you're doing, but I haven't seen a huge solution yet. The final question is, which individuals uh, or companies or brands do you look to for inspiration in your work? Gosh, well, I, I do have a lot of respect for, the, for, for John and Patrick Collison, who founded Stripe. Their building was around the corner from ours in San Francisco. Um, Stripe is an internet payments company, which sounds incredibly boring, but... They are just incredibly thoughtful people. They founded the company when they were in their early 20s, I think, in mid-20s. And I know a lot of people who work for them and they have managed to create just a a very thoughtful place to work where where people are really doing their best. And, And also a lot of the inspiration for what they do is around empowering, you know, people in maybe sub Saharan Africa to have access to the same financial infrastructures as someone like me in Silicon Valley, therefore putting everybody on a level playing field and really driving towards a true meritocracy in capitalism, which I think is, is you know, is pretty inspiring work for given it's in internet payments. Um, yes. So I, I do admire those guys a lot. Well, thank you so much. Uh, a fascinating conversation. I'd like to thank my guests, Alison Darcy and Estella Shardlow. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time for more Future Thinking from Stylus. You've been listening to Future Thinking from Stylus, the show where our analysts, alongside industry thought leaders, unpack the big trends you need to know about. Find out more about what the future holds for your business at stylus.com. And if you liked what you heard today, make sure you subscribe to Future Thinking in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts to hear new episodes as soon as they're available.